0: And welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman, with me as always, Prashant Iyer. And uh, let's start with some congratulations to the Super Bowl champion, San Francisco 49ers.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's my. It's a Sunday afternoon, so we're actually recording a couple hours before the Super Bowl, but we're going to just go ahead and get ahead of it. So you guys can, um, you know, acknowledge how correct we were on this prediction here. But I got the Niners, 31 24. What about you, Max?
0: Yep, and I I think that's about right. That's in the right range. I think the Chiefs have been uh digging too deeps of holes early in their playoff games. That is not going to work against the Niners. So we'll go ahead and get uh, an advance uh, Super Bowl MVP congratulations as well to Emmanuel Sanders.
1: Emmanuel Sanders, huh? You know what? I'm going to go with Nick Bosa. I think if anybody is able to slow down Patrick Mahomes, I think it's going to actually be Nick Bosa today.
0: All right. Well, we will see. Uh we'll see if we're right when this when this episode releases. If not, I'm sure we'll hear about it. And uh certainly I think it'd be fun to see Patrick Mahomes win it.
1: I mean, I that's who I'm rooting for. I'm actually preferring if the Chiefs win just cuz he's so much fun to watch and they're electric, but uh, and and I have a soft spot for Andy Reid cuz one of the first guys that really I watched when I got into football was Donovan McNabb and and TO in that 2003 Philadelphia Eagles team, you know, throwing it way back and Andy Reid was the coach, and so I feel like he deserves one. But I think the Niners are too good.
0: Yep, yep. I tend to agree. I think that uh I think that, you know the heart wants the Chiefs because they're the most fun team. They're extremely likable, but the head says the Niners. So we'll see where it goes. We do first though have uh, some Red Wing stuff that we got to get to, uh, and some more injury news. As if the Red Wing season needed any more of it, Phillips Edina is going to be out two to three weeks with a lower body injury. Uh Andreas Athanasiou will come back into the lineup, so that solves the lineup. You know, the, the Lions question right away will take his spot. But for a guy who is off to such a great rookie year like Zadina was, uh, one of the very few ways this Red Wing season could have gotten worse for that team.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of fans have been basically saying the only reason they're still watching at this point is to see Philip Zadina. Um, I've jokingly tweeted that I'm basically just here for the Philip Zadina goals at this point. And now that's, you know, on hold with Zadina being out a couple of weeks questionable as to what actually happened. I know a couple of people, including Ryan over at the Wing World podcast group, they've speculated maybe he took a shot off of his ankle, and there's seems to be a clip circulating that might indicate that that's what that is. But either way, losing him for two to three weeks, even though you get Athens to you back, just a huge blow for the watchability for this uh, Red Wings team right now, because he was having a great season. I, th- I think he was really making uh, some significant strides towards completing his overall game, and and really rounding out um, both the offensive and defensive sides of his game. So tough break for the Red Wings in a season full of them.
0: Yep, it absolutely is. If there was any uh, positive news to come out of the practice today on Sunday, it was that Anthony Mantha was on the ice in the orange no-contact jersey. Uh, He's expected to be in that for the next 7 to 10 days. If there's no further issues or setbacks, uh, then he gets into real practice. So I think you could be seeing actually a pretty similar timeline for return from both Mantha and Zadina.
1: Yeah, that'd be really exciting because I think everyone kind of got a little alarmed when there was the initial report, although it seems like that was maybe miscast as Mantha could be out for the rest of the season. But, uh, you know, being able to get both Mantha and Zedina back would really offer Detroit their first look at a a full lineup with their, from a forward standpoint because uh, it was right around when Mantha uh, gets himself hurt is when Zadina starts to ascend, and it made a natural fit for Zadina to just move up to that first line, and then Athanasius, who's obviously been in and out of the lineup, but bringing all of those guys in for maybe the last couple of weeks of the season will at least give the Red Wings front office a, a chance to evaluate what pieces they have, what roster spots they think they have filled, and and what still needs to be addressed in the in the coming years. With the way that
0: Mantha's season had started, I mean, it, it would have been a real, uh, real tough blow for everybody involved had he not gotten at least a chance to get back on the ice and maybe show a little bit more in, in this season. It's a contract year for him. I, you know, I think that, uh, a lot of the damage has been done when you miss as much time as he has. He's, he's missed what, eight weeks now?
1: Yeah, I mean, he's missed two solid months of, of game action and the counting stats just aren't going to be there. And unfortunately that's what's Relied on primarily when doing these restricted free agent negotiations.
0: Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But you know, you got to feel good for Mantha that he'll at least be able to get back on the ice. It looks like, uh, barring any further setbacks. So that's the main news out of practice today. Is, is there anything that you really takeaway wise you have from all this other than? The pain keeps coming for, for the Red Wings.
1: No, and honestly, a couple of people have brought up this interesting point that potentially the Red Wings have been a little snake bitten with injuries, and at least when you look at them over the last couple of years. Um, it's an interesting question to certainly raise because with the Danny DeKaiser injury, the Anthony Mantha injury, um, you know, this season, Mantha obviously getting hurt last year and having multiple other guys miss extended time, Mike Green missing a lot of time last year. I think the the challenging part is for the Wings, the guys that have been they've been relying on who maybe wouldn't be superstar players on another team, but the guys that the Wings have truly counted on have been out for large chunks of time over the last couple of seasons, and that's certainly impacted the results the Wings are able to achieve. They haven't necessarily had more man games lost, per se, but you could make the point that the guys that are key for the Red Wings... Uh, have been out for extended periods of times in the last couple of seasons, and that's really made it a challenge for the Wings to stay competitive.
0: Yeah, I bet if you could index the man games lost relative to percent of team scoring or whatever expected goals or something like that, uh they'd be right up there with with the most of. Obviously, some teams like Pittsburgh are, uh, have to be up there with Jake Gensel and then Chris Letang missed significant time and Crosby but, and Malkin
1: uh, this year, right? So.
0: Right, Crosby, that's right. Yeah. So I would say Pittsburgh probably gets gets the biggest uh, injury complaints if they want it, but uh the Red Wings are certainly up there. They've had a really tough go of it and uh they didn't need any any additions to their degree of difficulty as is this season. Do you want to talk at all though about the two Rangers games that they played this weekend?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were two Red Wings hockey games, I think. Uh <laughs> you know, they came back from the break and nothing had really changed. I think the if you look at the Friday night game against the Rangers, the one that was in New York, uh you know, I was surprised that uh, the Red Wings would come out as flat as they did. Uh, the Rangers really dominated the first 40 minutes of that game. And at the end of the second period, I think it's 4 nothing, And the Rangers had completely overwhelmed Detroit. Uh, and so there's just not a whole lot to really take away from that game. The Wings were able to to push back a little bit. And I thought Jimmy Howard had a number of great saves, particularly in the first period, uh, to keep the Wings in, in the game for the most part. Um, but the Rangers, I think scored three times in the second. so actually that fourth goal in the uh, by the Rangers came early in the third. but just not enough, no no real energy in the first or second, and not enough in the third when they really needed the big push. I mean, this is a team that just simply cannot afford to get that far behind because they're just not scoring goals.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I actually thought they played okay on the Saturday game. Uh even you could even say they played good, other than the fact that while they did generate a ton of chances, uh they generated chances that were so good that it ends up counting against them that they missed them. you are thinking of the goals like the Valtteri Philpola, uh two whacks at a wide open net. Dylan Larkin had one that I think uh I think it might have hopped on him on a rebound on the early power play. Uh they had enough of like grade A to grade A plus chances. That uh, it starts to count against them at that point because while, while the expected goal certainly looks it looks uh, you know like like it tends to their favor for the game, those chances were so good that the fact that they missed them, uh, you know, you got to hold it against them at that point.
1: Yeah, I actually thought the game on Saturday night was at least the first thirty minutes was the kind of game the Wings generally like to play for sure uh, because neither side really had great chances whatsoever. I thought it was a lot of. Uh, fluff, there's a lot of long range shots and, and to a lot of people that's a boring hockey game through those first 30 minutes. But that's kind of the way the wings want to play hockey because that's really their only chance to stay in them is to play a tight defensive game, keep everything to the perimeter, and then hope they're the ones that get that lucky bounce. But unfortunately the wings don't get the lucky bounce. They kind of have to open up the the ice a little bit to make their push to try and score. They end up trading a lot more chances with the Rangers in the second 30 minutes of the game. And then, you know, to your point, Max, they had a number of chances to score. The Felpola chance is just a chance you're not going to see him miss very often, both missing on the backhand after he pulls the puck past Lundqvist and then missing on the second opportunity uh, when he's three feet away from the net. You've got the Dylan Larkin breakaway at the end of the second period where he goes forehand-backhand and just can't slide it underneath Lundqvist. Obviously the power play rebound where the first puck bounces over his stick and then by the time he gets the chance at the second, uh, the second whack at it, Lundquist is back in position. Uh, I think Patrick Nemeth had a great one timer on a, on a low high pass where, you know, Lundquist was able to flash the glove on that and, and it was just Lundquist being Lundquist in the second half of the game. But really those are the kinds of games the wings want to play, particularly those first 30 minutes. It just, they didn't get the bounces to go their way as has been the case for most of the year.
0: Yep, absolutely, and uh, you know, it, after the Friday night game, I think it was probably a little bit of a welcome, uh, you know, it's all shades of grey, I guess, it's all losing, but a welcome boost in their play, because I didn't think they looked all that good out of the break on, on Friday night against the uh, the Rangers and in New York, um, but they play a lot better. Jonathan Bernier, once again, was outstanding in his return. Uh, I gotta think that, as much as you at least is is going to be a huge boost for them just to have Bernier back.
1: Yeah, I mean Bernier's really been the team MVP in my opinion. I think nobody has provided more value to this team. I think he's he's what really keeps the wings close enough or competitive enough competitive enough in their games to even stay within striking distance. And and obviously Larkin has made a big push over the last couple of weeks and Tyler Bertuzzi had a really strong Uh, Has had a really really strong season overall, and Mantha obviously started off fantastic. But to me, the one guy that's consistently provided value to this Red Wings team has not really had a lot of bad games is Jonathan Bernier. And and so to get him back, I think, will at least allow the Wings to stay within striking distance, if you will. Um, they, They were able to be within one goal, the Rangers, for most of the night. He had no chance really on that. Uh, cross slot pass that results in Zibanejad getting that goal. I mean, he's got no opportunity there to, to do anything about that one. So getting him back should at least keep the wings close enough to, uh, to at least have a chance.
0: Yep. Yep. I would tend to agree. Uh, I am curious. So they are, their goal differential now is down to minus 93, I believe. Yeah, minus 93. It's on pace to be about minus 143, minus 144. I did a story this week comparing them to the worst teams of the salary cap era and then to the worst teams of NHL history. Uh, although we did do some adjusting for teams that were in the first couple of years of, uh, of their franchises history expansion teams in, in that window and such. Did you read that? Where, where do you think, where do you see them stacking up uh, as, as it comes to the, the historical bad teams, bad seasons, I guess we should say?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to place them. I think number one, um, having that minus 144 goal differential puts them right on par with the 85-86 Red Wings, which is uh, traditionally considered the worst Red Wings team of all time. That team only recorded 40 points on the season. They had the fewest goals for, the most goals against, the most penalty minutes. Uh, truly awful, awful hockey team. And this team is right there. They're on track to be right there from a point standpoint, and they're on track to be there from a goal differential standpoint. And I think the, the compelling thing when you look at this team is when you look at them relative to the rest of the league, they are so far behind the rest of the league in a number of metrics. And it's not necessarily luck because even when you look at some of their, uh, their more advanced metrics like expected goals four or Corsi four percentage, they are still well behind most teams in the league and they are towards the bottom. And it's, it's truly amazing when you look at it because um, it's 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 hard to fathom how bad they are. Like so from an expected goals forward percentage, they're thirtieth out of thirty one teams. Only the Winnipeg Jets have a worse expected goals for percentage at five on five. The wings right now sit at forty four point eight. Jets are at forty one point nine eight. I have no idea how that's the case. Um, but a lot of the wings expected goals forward problems are actually driven by simply the quantity of shots that they allow and then and how few shots they generate because when you look at them from a Corsi 4 percentage, and again, that's focusing strictly on the quantity of shots, uh, the Wings are dead last in the league at 44.6% using the Evolving Hockey uh, website there, and they're two full percentage points behind the 30th team, which is actually the Rangers, a team that pretty well dominated them Friday and then on, on Saturday was at least a little bit more competitive. So I truly believe if you remove teams that are in, within their first two years of expansion, I think this is one of the five worst teams in hockey history.
0: Yeah, I, it's it's got to be. I mean, when, when you take out the expansion teams, there's a really good case for it. I mean, you can look at some of the components too. I mean, the expansion capitals are the easy winner of this. They only won eight games. They only had 21 points. They gave up... 446 goals. I thought the 85-86 Red Wings were the most ever, but someone pointed out to me uh, right in the the first chart I used, I I had missed it. So when I ran the query, I must have done something wrong because 446 does not even seem possible over a 80-game season. I mean, it's like five and a half goals a game.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the 74-75 Capitals and even the following season, 75-76, they were barely any better that year. Right. Um, the other team, again, when you're focusing on the expansion ones, the 92-93 Senators, 93-94 Senators were absolutely putrid. Uh, the early Sharks teams were absolutely putrid. The early Tampa Bay Lightning teams were absolutely putrid. But it makes sense for those expansion teams. Uh, the Atlanta Thrashers were also absolutely awful in their first two seasons. But those are teams that were starting from nobody and having to basically build a hockey team in a couple, of, basically, with the context of the expansion draft, one NHL uh, draft, and then one NHL free agency. And there was really no time to actually build a competitive hockey team. And so, to then remove those teams out and look at other teams in the history of hockey, it's unbelievable how bad this Red Wings team is when you do that. There are very few teams that are in this ballpark. Obviously, more recently, the 14-15 Buffalo Sabres, which right. from an advanced metric standpoint were absolutely putrid, uh, relative to the rest of the league. They had a, so I mentioned the Wings 5 on 5 expected goals 4 percentage and 5 on 5 Corsi 4 percentage. Uh, so going back to 2007-2008, which is as far back as we have the data, the Wings, uh, Corsi 4 percentage of 44.6 is 17th worst. But that Sabres team in 14-15 was at 36.3%. That's eight full percentage points lower and five full percentage points lower than the next team. And their expected goals for percentage was at 39.1. Again, a uh, uh, several percentage points below the worst team. But even they managed to record more points. Uh, the Sabres recorded, I believe, 48 points or maybe 52 points, if I'm remembering correctly, that year. And they managed to score more than the Wings did. So it's it's really hard to say that there's there's not many teams in the Wings League, if you will, uh when it comes to how bad they've been in a non expansion comparison.
0: I was struck by the five on five goals four percentage difference compared to expected goals four percentage difference. Almost like ten percent. So really it's more like a quarter. Like they're giving up a quarter more goals than they than the uh, you know, expected goals would say they should be.
1: Yeah, and that I think a large part of it has to come down to goaltending and the biggest difference between those 14-15 Sabers teams and and the this year's Red Wings teams is that they the Sabers actually got great goaltending for the most part of the season and goaltending is honestly what kept them in a lot of those games whereas this year when the Wings have had to rely heavily on on Jimmy Howard with Bernie having a couple of extended periods of absence and and Howard's just been uh, absolutely awful this year, the Wings have not been able to stay competitive, and, and games have really gotten away from them. I mean, we've talked about how the the Wings have a huge tendency to almost fold as soon as that first goal go, goes in. Uh, and so with that being said, even though the Wings, from an analytics standpoint, aren't the truly worst team, their goaltending has really brought them down to another level.
0: One of the other things that really caught my eye is their penalty kill is truly trending as one of the worst ever. It's already one tenth of a percent behind the worst of the last 30 years. That would be the 1819 Blackhawks who are at 72.7%. These are at 72.8% right now. Uh, that is the worst since basically 8889, which is also 72.7%. Like the worst ever is 68.2. I don't think that's off the table.
1: I don't think it's off the table either, because to me, I haven't necessarily seen anything that demonstrates they've figured out how to how to actually operate the penalty kill. I mean, it, at times it's uh, it's embarrassing how far off or the some of the chances that are given up. Like if, even if you look at the the Mika Zibanejad goal, the goal that ends up being the the game winner for the Rangers on Saturday night. There's no way you can give up that cross slot right in front of the net. There's no way you can give up that pass. I understand that the Rangers have great players in Artemi Panarin and and Mika Zibanejad and, and, and this and that, but the entirety of the way the Wings design their penalty kill is to actually have two defensemen right in front of the net to effectively prevent that pass from being completed. And that pass has gotten through far too many times this season. And there's just no real explanation for for how the Wings are going to just continue to allow that to happen. And, and honestly, if you just bundle the whole special team stuff together, the Wings are only a couple percentage points away from having the worst power play in the league as well. So we're truly talking about a team that has the fewest goals scored at even strength, the most goals given up at even strength, the fewest power play goals scored, and the most short or the most power play goals allowed against and so when you're talking about failing in every facet of the game i think that's what really puts this team at another level and really puts them into the conversation of one of the five worst teams we've ever seen pretty
0: crazy pretty uh it's one of those things where like when you're watching it it's easy to make jokes like that like man has anyone ever been has anyone ever had a worse season than this And, and then you look it up and it's like ooh not actually not very many have so it's uh it's pretty jarring to kind of look at the numbers laid out that way I, obviously i do think there's something to be said for you know use the phrase like worst team or whatever like this team obviously still made up of a bunch of guys who are extremely fast extremely skilled you take it i think when when you go forward in time guys are always getting better and faster and so it is uh, it's, it's kind of tough phraseology, I guess, because I think, you know, these guys would still beat a, a great team from the 80s, you know, under today's rules, I guess. But, um, but yeah, like in terms of relative to the rest of the league, they are as, uh, as far behind the pack as just about anybody's been.
1: Yeah. I mean, you make a great point. Like we often reference the 85-86 Red Wings as being one of the worst teams that we've ever seen. And, and they're right in that regard. That team only managed 40 points, but that team had Steve Eiserman on it. Uh, and there, there are still great players who are stuck in these situations. And I think, number one, what that really illustrates is the fact that one player cannot drag you upward. We've seen a lot of that over the last few years with Connor McDavid and Edmonton. As great of a player as he is, he's not been able to turn around Edmonton all by himself. He needs the help. He needs the other guys to really step up. And, and that hasn't been the case. The 85-86 Red Wings, I mean, they had... That team had Adam Oates, Steve Eiserman, Peter Klima, Reed Larson. Like, they had a lot of really good players on that team. and And that still was a team that just wasn't greater than the sum of its parts. And that's the whole point when you're talking about hockey. And that's why we talk about the rebuild needing to be such a long period of time. And that's why it's so important not to try and accelerate through that rebuild too quickly or think that maybe you've... Achieved your your level before you're actually there. And that's because you need so many different pieces to make a team both a contender, not only just a contender, but a sustainable contender. And so that's what the wings are going to need to focus on as they move from this season to next season and to the years down the road is who do I have that is going to be a part of that sustainable contender? And there's pieces here. We've talked about Dylan Larkin, Anthony Mantha, Philip Zadina, We've talked about Philip Roenick. That's at least four pieces that we're saying are going to be part of this future. Tyler Bertuzzi is another guy, potentially a fifth piece right there, that these are five guys who can be on a sustainable playoff contender. It's just how do you turn over the other 17 guys on the roster uh, to make it such that you are that playoff contender? So there's a lot of moving parts uh, that really need to get fixed, and that's why it's so important not to jump the gun here.
0: I also did want to make a point based off what you just said. I, I quickly looked it up about Steve Eisner being on that 85 86 team. And I had someone in my mentions last night, you know, talking about Larkin's dip in production, right? And, and what does it mean with the up and down? And to me, a lot of it really can be traced to team quality. And uh, inevitably, that affects production, right?
1: Yeah, in, I mean, in a number of ways. Yeah, if you don't have quality teammates, uh, you're not going to score a whole lot of points unless you're really doing it yourself.
0: So for context, Steve Iserman, uh eighty four eighty five, had eighty nine points in eighty games, about one point one one points per game. Eighty five eighty six, he drops down. The team is horrible, the bottom falls out, and he drops down to forty two in fifty one. That's about .8 points per game. So a dip, a pretty big difference there. Almost .3 points per game, uh, between the two. It was .82 technically. The year after that, they get a little bit better. He's back up to 90 and 80. Almost identical to what he had been the year before. So, uh, watch for that. I think, you know, maybe easy to dismiss that kind of stuff as like, yeah, chicken or egg, what came first, the bad year from the players, the bad year from the team. It really works both ways. And I think it's a really interesting, um, just, just thing to keep an eye on, you know.
1: Yeah, and, and honestly, I do think Larkin's point totals are, are slightly overblown because I think we often forget what the level of a first-line scorer is. Uh, sure. I mean, right now, Larkin's at 37 points in 53 games. That's 81st in the league right now, um, and I believe it's like 76th if you only include forwards. So when you're considering that there's 31 teams in the league and that there's three forwards that play, uh, on each line you're saying that effectively a first liners production is going to be a guy who's in the top 93 well Larkin is in the top 93 he's still scoring at a first line rate uh, it's just not the same 70 plus points that you had last year uh, and again missing Mantha for a large chunk of time this season now missing Zadina missing Athanasiou other guys you can take some of the pressure off of him. that's going to dip his numbers but his numbers are still first line numbers so I, I think it's really important to keep that in perspective.
0: It is. And I, you know, I agree with that. I just think, like, it's also worth noting. I, I really expect him to bounce back. And I think it's already actually kind of started over the last month or so. He's basically been a point per game player again, um, just individually. So, just something to keep an eye on. I thought it was worth, uh, I thought it was worth bringing up, but we can, we can move on to the rest of stuff. You got a little game for us to play, right?
1: I do. And actually, we can start with Dylan Larkin, uh, there. So, you know, given the Wings have 29 games remaining, There's a handful of different situations that are at play here that I'm that I'm curious to see uh, what your opinion is on. So the first question, uh, we'll start with Dylan Larkin here, and since we're talking about his scoring, I've set a couple of over and under or over under lines for those of you that are familiar with those. That where Max has to basically, I'm going to give him a number, and he's got to tell me whether he would say that's going to get exceeded or bet the over, or if he thinks that. The result will come in under that, and he'll take the under at that point. And we'll revisit these at the end of the year to see how well Max does. But the first one is with Dylan Larkin scoring. So he's got 37 points in 53 games. He's got 13 points in his last 13 games. I'm setting a line for you that in the final 29 games, assuming he remains healthy for all 29, the over-under is set at 23 points uh, to give Larkin a nice round 60. Do you think he goes over or under that?
0: I think that's right in the ballpark. I'll take a slight over. I think that's about 8.8 points per game. I think he'll go slightly over that, especially as Mantha gets healthy.
1: Yeah, I actually agree that getting Mantha back and potentially having that Bertuzzi, Larkin, Mantha line reunite and having an you back and potentially Zadina might take some of the defensive pressure off of him. And so if if Larkin's able to pot 23 or 24, even 25 points over the, the final 29 games, you're talking about a guy who's again back in the 60-point territory while having excellent defensive metrics. Even on a team that's been as bad as Detroit, he still has graded out excellent defensively. I think you're really seeing Larkin kind of blossom into that prototypical two-way center. So uh, I'll give you that there, and we'll revisit that. I would also take the over. Um, all, right. all right, next one here. So the Red Wings, as a team, have 28 points right now. Through 53 games, that leaves them at a point pace of about 43 by the end of the season. We've mentioned that 40 is the all, is the team record, at least since World War II, for fewest points in a season. I'm gonna set the over under line here at 12. Do the wings get more than 12 points the rest of the way, or do they come in under that? Oh my
0: gosh. All right, so we've already basically decided on a previous episode that we think they're getting less than 4 or fewer than 4 points in the month of March.
1: Right. So their March schedule think, is absolutely brutal. Just to reiterate, versus Colorado, versus Chicago, versus Tampa versus Carolina at Washington, at Tampa, versus Florida at Arizona, at Vegas, at Boston, versus Philly, versus Washington at St. Louis.
0: And then April is at Toronto versus Tampa Bay. I don't think you're winning either of those two games. Right. Okay, so can we find twelve points in February for them? We might we might be able to find that. Alright. So they go versus Philly, at Buffalo, at Columbus, versus Boston, at Buffalo, at New Jersey, at Boston, at Pittsburgh, versus Montreal, who they're undefeated against, at New York, versus Calgary, versus New Jersey, versus Minnesota, at Ottawa. I can find four wins there. Can I find four overtime losses? Would four be their high for a month? I think it would I be. think
1: that would be their high for the month for wins.
0: <laughs> It'd be tied with October. Yep. Uh, no, they're. I'm going to say under. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, and so the, the reason why I wanted to ask you this is I wanted to see, are we basically going to say and commit that this team is going to set effectively the franchise record for, for lowest point total, ignoring seasons prior to World War II? Yeah. Um, And that's what we're effectively saying if you say they come in under 12 points. Their schedule the rest of the way is brutal. They only have 10 games remaining against teams that have a regulation point percentage less than 500. So 19 games remaining against teams that are better than 500 in regulation. It's it's kind of hard to fathom. They also have 15 road games, 14 home games. I think maybe you could win one of the Buffalo games... Maybe you win against Montreal and go 4-0 against Montreal, which would just be mind-boggling.
0: I think they'll get New Jersey. You'll
1: probably beat New Jersey, uh, and you have two opportunities against New Jersey, and so potentially you could even win both of those. And then you've got Ottawa, and that gets you to 10. You would still need to find a way to steal three overtime losses or shootout losses against what effectively amounts to playoff teams the rest of the way.
0: Here's what could, what could decide it is right after the trade deadline, the next three games, they play three sellers. Is it possible that Minnesota, New Jersey, and Ottawa all sell and you're getting a demoralized version of each of those teams that's trying to figure out what they do without a guy like Joe, what they do without a guy like potentially Zucker, what they do without a guy uh, or Dumba even, what, what New Jersey would do without a guy if, if they ended up moving someone like And I think. Is he out there?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that that's a great point. And if you end up picking a three-game win streak, which the Wings have done this season, they've, they've put together three in a row, uh, you know, maybe you get your six points right there, but you're still asking for another seven points from somewhere else. And to me personally, I don't see it. I think this team is going to finish with 38 points. Which, when we came into the season, we were talking about how bad the Colorado Avalanche were in 1617, with 48 points to come in, 10 points under them, would be absolutely unbelievable.
0: We will see where it goes. Things can, like you said, one win streak can change the projection drastically, but especially when you look at that murderer's march that we have had circled since really before the season even started, we've been talking about what march was going to be like. Uh That is going to be a fascinating thing to watch. I I, I think it'd almost be an upset at this point if they do not finish below that 48-point marker.
1: Yeah, I mean, to finish above 48 points, you're talking about this team getting 21 points from their final 29 games. I just don't see it, particularly with their schedule that they've got right now. I think you're more likely to end up with six points than you are to end up with 21 points. Wow. All
0: right. All right. Uh, what's the next one? All
1: right. So next one, we'll, we'll move this over to the Jimmy Howard division. So wins the rest of the way. So how many more wins does Jimmy Howard get this season? I've set the line for you at one and a half. So he currently well, has two wins in twenty-four starts this season.
0: We've said we think the Red Wings, based on that last answer, we think they're going to win somewhere between five and
1: somewhere no, between five, four and six and games. Yeah,
0: yeah. Is he in the net for two of them? I'll take the over. I think. I think that's law of averages.
1: I don't know. When I set this line, I was thinking surely he's got to he's got to come away with two wins here. But then. We remember that Jimmy Howard's last win was Halloween. That was October 31st. We are on February 2nd recording this. Jimmy Howard does not have a win in those games, uh, which is absolutely unbelievable. Um, so
0: I think he's played at least two winnable games since then. That's not saying a whole lot, but I will take the over on 1.5.
1: Okay. I you? am going to take the under, and I'm going to say he gets one more win. Partly because I think they're going to rely heavily on Bernier, and so he'll kind of be relegated to a backup role, and and partly because I just I just don't see it. The Wings don't have a ton of back to backs remaining uh, the rest of the way. Their back to backs I think that they've got left are next, or basically this week at Buffalo at Columbus, then in March they have an at Ve- or at Arizona at Vegas. And those are their only back-to-backs remaining the rest of the way. So I don't know how many more games he even gets into to, to get those two wins. But I'll, I'll give it to you, Max, but I'm going to take the under. All right. All right, so then staying in the Jimmy Howard division, Jimmy Howard's save percentage right now is currently at 884. Since 1995-1996, effectively what I'm terming the start of the dead puck era, the worst save percentage for a goalie who started at least 25 games is 880, which was Vesa Toscala in 2009-2010. So I'm setting the line for you at 880. Does Jimmy Howard finish with better than an 880 save percentage?
0: I'm going to take over on 880 just because I think, I don't think he could play any worse and he's at, he's above that, so I will hold at a slight, but I think he'll be under 890. So, like, I'll, But I'll, I'll take the over on 880 if that's what the line is.
1: Yeah, I'm going to set the line at 880 simply because from a historical standpoint, it's really interesting to see if he's going to set this quote-unquote record that I've just made up for the dead puck era. Um, I would also take the over simply because I don't know that things are going to get worse with Mantha, Athanasiu, and uh, Zadina all likely to be in the lineup together in the next month. Before that brutal March stretch hits, I think he does manage to avoid it. And kind of in the same bucket, I thought an interesting uh, statistic was that in 2008-2009, that unbelievable Red Wings team, Chris Osgood, is on this list with an 887 save percentage in o eight o nine, which is absolutely mind-blowing because the guy then posted a 930 save percentage in the playoffs, taking him all the way to Game 7 of the Cup final. So... Really fascinating uh, inclusion there for Osgood. But all right, I think we're both going to take the over then. All right. All right, last one here. So with Andreas Athanasiu drawing back into the lineup, obviously the story with Athanasiu in the first part of the season was his plus-minus. He was a minus 35 through 36 games played. Had he played the whole season, the NHL record is actually minus 82 By Bill Mickelson on that 74-75 Capitals team, and that would have potentially been in danger. So, with 29 games remaining, and Athens CU presumably playing in all of those, I've set the line for you for his plus-minus at minus 50. Are you going to go under, meaning he's going to finish with a better plus-minus than minus 50, or over, meaning he's going to finish with worse than minus 50?
0: He's gonna play on the Larkin line when he's back for at least a couple weeks, I think. I think that's good enough to hold him. Maybe not even, but not at minus one per game. I will take Oh, uh, but there's a lot of games left.
1: There's twenty nine games left. So I, I didn't even give it to you at his rate. Um because his rate I would have set it then at at, at around minus sixty four. So I actually cut his rate in half that he'd been accumulating minuses and still put you at minus 50. Here's your line.
0: I will take – if he gets traded, then that'll be better. I'm not saying I think that's likely, but I think it's a possibility. And if it's close, I think I should lean under, but I think it's going to be close. Okay.
1: Okay. I feel like I have to take the over here.
0: Yeah, I, if if you told me that he's definitely on the Red Wings for the end of the season, then I'm taking the over. But I think there's enough of a chance of a trade that I have to weigh that.
1: Yeah, and so it's it's tricky because here, since 1979 1980, which is what uh, Hockey Reference has available for plus minus data in their in their searchable database, there have only been 14 players to finish with a plus-minus of minus 50 or worse. All of them played at least 59 games. And so Athanasio, if he presumably plays the final uh, 29 games, he's going to come in right at uh, 65 games played, which would be the second fewest of any player to then end up on this list. So tall task ahead. I still think he's going to go over here.
0: All right. It would not surprise me. This that I think that's the toughest one for me of the entire thing.
1: All right. Well, I'm glad I gave you a little bit of a challenge there.
0: That's right. Um, should we go to the questions? Yeah, let's do it. Not that we haven't been kind of doing questions for a few <laughs> minutes, but you get the point. Not from us. This one's from B-League Chump. He says, Do you think it's possible Iserman will ship out any of the Holland-era prospects for extra mid- to late-run picks this summer? Thinking guys like Holloway, Kankinsalo, O'Reilly, and Adams.
1: It's a great question. And, I mean, Iserman has kind of started it to a certain extent with, with shipping off David Pope uh in season. And, and I think he's a guy that, you know, all the guys really listed, I think, are guys that don't necessarily have a, a future with the Red Wings. I think it's hard to anticipate any of those guys really make it. Um, The problem is, what are you gonna get for, for guys like that? So, the David Pope, the David Pope trade really netted you an AHL veteran defenseman in the sense of Alex Biega, who has had to step into a a lot of NHL action this year. So, I don't know that you're gonna get much more pick-wise, uh, maybe sixth and seventh rounders, although I don't know how many of those you necessarily wanna accumulate. And I don't know that he can, he can necessarily trade his, bundle those to trade his way up into other rounds. Um, so you might end up swapping those picks for either veterans that could fill a hole for you for next year or the year after, uh, versus just not tendering those guys and letting them walk when their contracts are up.
0: Yep. Yep. I think, uh, I, I don't think that there's really any ties or whatever to those guys. The only thing I would say is, Who's going to give up a mid-round pick for any? Maybe you can get a late rounder, but even then, don't you think almost every team could find a guy that they like at least as much as those guys in the sixth or seventh round of the draft?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think you could. And again, this is a scenario where new is going to be better because you're going to take a sixth or seventh rounder who's going to be three, four years younger than these guys with technically their future not already spelled out for them, even though the trajectory is likely to end up similar to these guys, uh, you're at least taking a shot on the unknown versus the known that these guys are probably never hitting the NHL and you're, you're basically paying for AHL or even ECHL depth. Yep.
0: Yep. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know about any of those guys having a ton of trade pull. One guy who I'm still interested in is Adams, just because I think there's some raw tools there. He just has not been able to really stay healthy, though, and uh, obviously had a tough injury this year. So uh, I don't. I think you'd have a really hard time trading him. So um, that, to me, I think would be my answer. We got one from um, Rowan earlier this week. He sent me a DM, and I forgot to credit him on the Jenna Fisher question. So retroactive credit to Rowan uh, on that one. But he does want to know. If the Red Wings can extend Hironik in July, even though he has another year to go, should they do it then or wait another season?
1: Yeah, so they absolutely can extend him. I believe as soon as July first, uh, you can extend with your RFAs up to one year uh, prior to their contract expiring. So he absolutely should be extended at that point in time. This would again is very similar to the Moritz Sider situation where. You want to get these guys to the negotiating table earlier and so if you have the opportunity to negotiate with Philip Roenick before he potentially puts up an even better year than the one he's putting up right now, you may be able to come in at a at a cheaper bargain. I imagine that Roenick is going to be a, a huge priority for Eiserman this off season. I really do think he's a guy who's just going to get better and better and the longer you wait to pay him, the the more likely you are to have to pay him a, a lot more money. I think you could potentially make an offer to extend him for five or even six years and see if you could get him to bite at a cap hit of, of $4 million, uh or $4.5 million, somewhere in that ballpark uh, and see if that locks it up. And that way you might be able to have one of those quote-unquote excellent contracts as Philip Ronan kind of rounds out the rest of his game.
0: Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the whole thing is, does Philip Peronic want to do a deal now or does he want to, you know, wait a year? He's got like a minus 27. I don't really care about that stat, especially for a young defenseman who's been asked to play massive minutes. Uh, but contract negotiators might. So if you're Philip Peronic, do you want to sign after this season? He, he's on pace to have a great season. He's on pace to get close to 40 points, if not even surpass it a little bit. Um, but do you want to just wait a year and negotiate that? And so if you're the Red Wings, you should absolutely be trying to get that done to be offering a big bonus to, to to give him the incentive to do it. Otherwise there's really not one unless there's a big bonus, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think they should try to do it. I'm not sure if I was Horonik's agent if I would recommend him to. But you never know. It varies for different guys.
1: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. It's always a different perspective. Team, yeah, you absolutely want to lock up this guy. Player, I would bet on myself and take the year, knowing that Philip Horonik is going to get a ton of minutes and a ton of opportunities.
0: But if you get like a $5 million signing bonus, yeah, that changes things yeah, a little
1: bit. Yeah, fair, especially with a, with a potential impending lockout. Yeah, if you, I'll take that money up front.
0: Right. All right, uh, Dan Bell asks, "Would it be a massive mistake if the Red Wings miss out on Gerard Gallant?" Uh, he says, "Blashaw has been more and more vocal in the media about how his teams play." I don't actually know if that's true, but he says, "How much longer can this last?"
1: It's a it's a great question. I honestly thought Gallant would have been s- scooped up a lot earlier, uh, given how many in season coaching changes had happened and how quick teams were to replace their coaches with other guys who had just recently been fired. Uh, like John Hines and Peter, Pete DeBoer. But it's a, it's surprising that Gallant has lasted this long. I don't know if that's because he wants to do it on his terms, if he's kind of doing what Joel Quenville did when he was let go, which was basically step aside, wait for the right opportunity and, and step in in the, in the offseason like Quenville did when he stepped in with Florida. Um, I, I don't know that I could term it a massive mistake. Uh, simply because I think the relative value of the coach comparatively to the the players on the ice is substantially less, uh, particularly in a situation where Detroit's not anywhere near in position to compete. Uh, I don't know that it would be a huge mistake to pass on him. That being said, I do think he's an excellent coach and could certainly help this organization, but he is not going to be the difference between this team being where it's at and being... You know, twenty points closer to playoff contention.
0: Yeah. What What interests me is is this the kind of team that Gallant wants to take over? Now he took kind of the ultimate ragtag group on and took them to the cup in their first year uh, as an expansion team. So I think that is maybe a point in his favor, right? Like you take a guy of uh, a team of guys who people don't believe in, and and you convince them to. to go all out and all that stuff i mean that's that to me is a point in his favor but does he want to sign up for a rebo? this is a guy who has not really been able to latch on for any long period of time with any one uh team so far uh two and a half years i think is his long point with the team are the red wings in the playoff hunt in two and a half years i think it's possible i don't know that it's a gimme and i don't know if that is a strong selling point uh for him
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And then, at least selfishly speaking, like from an analytics perspective, I don't know that Gallant has necessarily been a huge proponent of that. And with the the way the league is trending in terms of a lot of teams starting to add more and more analytics personnel to try and diversify their ability to evaluate players and evaluate the draft and evaluate prospects and evaluate their their situations, um, you do have to wonder if the Red Wings eventually move in that direction is it going to be a scenario where you have a, a disconnect between front office and, and coaching like you had in Toronto with Babcock and Dubas that ultimately needs to get rectified by having two guys on the same page? I don't know. Um, and I don't know that it's also fair to necessarily label Gallant like that. It's just the reputation that kind of he developed coming out of Florida.
0: Right. And what should be said is Dubas didn't get to hire right. Babcock. Whoever Eisman hires, he will be hiring. So you have to presume – that they will be on the same page.
1: With Absolutely. That.
0: Yeah. What I will say, so uh, our Pierre LeBron talked to Gerard Gallant earlier this week, and, and Gallant told him he hasn't thought about it yet. It's been two weeks he hasn't heard from anybody. Any team would have to go through Vegas first because he is technically still under contract. Um But, you know, he, he said he's glad he hasn't heard anything. He, he wanted to kind of wind down. So he said there's no rush, basically. So I, it wouldn't surprise uh it wouldn't surprise me if this waits till the off season. Now, as for should the Red Wings be worried about, like, missing out or whatever, I think he is a guy you absolutely have to bring in for an interview if you have an opening. Um, He's just got that much pedigree. He's had that much success. Uh, I think you got to bring him in. But I think at the end of the day, uh, like, I think the only missed opportunity is if they find out that, you know, Gallant's going to be snapped up and, and they haven't even talked to him. But I don't necessarily see that happening, and uh, it's not always something you can predict. So... I would say, uh, that's kind of where I fall on that. And, and, you know, I, I also still think, you know, Jeff Blashill is still their coach, right? So I don't think there's too much they can really do about it. You're not going to bring Gerard Gallant in for a meeting while you still have Blashill there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And again, all of this is just purely speculation because at the end of the day, Jeff Blashell is the coach of the Detroit Red Wings and, and it's kind of hard to speculate on replacing him when he hasn't even been fired.
0: No, and I, I don't like talking about like a, a job in that sense, but but you know I think it's impossible in this scenario with the history of Gallant and Iserman to uh, just to, to not bring it up. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought it was worth uh, oh, worth yeah. referencing. Um, let me see who asked this question. I think his name was Brandon Gilbo. He says, "If the Red Wings only make one trade at the deadline, who do we think is moved, and what is the return?"
1: I think if you make only one deal at the deadline. Um, that's a that's a tough question uh, to think. I mean, the guy that's gonna net you the most is Andreas Athanasiou if if he's moved. But to me, if I'm guessing what the Wings are ultimately gonna do, I don't think they make a big move during the season. I think if anybody is dealt, it's ultimately gonna be a guy like Trevor Daly or Madison Bowie, and it's gonna net you a, a late round pick, and that's gonna be it. I just don't see Athanasi being moved right now with uh, with him missing so much time and having in, in the midst of an awful season. I think you might net more uh, re-signing him and trying to move him next year or even trying to move him closer to the draft for his rights uh, as opposed to right now. So I think if anything happens, it's, it's maybe Trevor Daly or Madison Bowie and you get somewhere between a fifth and seventh round pick for one of those guys.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. The other things I think are interesting are, are ways to kind of package deals and and, and make everything uh, make a little more sense. We've talked about how Athanasiu's value probably not in the exact same place it would have been last summer, but I wonder if there's a package that could be done, whether that's a package where maybe you take on a bad contract uh, in order to inflate the value of a return. Is there a way that, let's say you're trading with Edmonton and uh, and Edmonton wants Andreas Athanasiu, they're suddenly kind of, I wouldn't call it a comfortable playoff spot because of how tight that division is, but they're in, I think they're in second, Place in that division right now. Uh, if they decide that they want Athanasia to play with McDavid, which by the way I think would work extremely well, is there a prospect left in the system that Ken Holland or a young player that Ken Holland still uh, has an affinity for? Uh, that you can make that kind of trade with. I, I think that's an interesting way to do it. Uh, someone, I forget if it was on Twitter or what, but someone was talking about the Corey Conacher trade. Uh, and it just is a reminder that Iserman is not the most predictable GM in the league. So uh, my prediction is the same as yours. I think it's going to likely to be a low deal involving a late, if not conditional draft pick for like someone like a Trevor Daly. I think he's the most logical guy to be moved. Uh, but I am going to be uh unsurprised if there's something surprising if that makes sense
1: yeah I mean it's just hard to guess you, you have no idea what Steve Eisenman and he's won so many deals in that respect like the Corey Conacher for Ben Bishop deal that at the time a lot of people thought Conacher was the better player and all of a sudden Ben Bishop is effectively uh, a Vezina level goalie for the Tampa Bay Lightning and now Dallas Stars so uh it's tough to know, but I'd say if anybody gets moved, my bet would be would be Trevor Daly.
0: Yep. All right, and then Zach asks, why is the organization so high on Gustav Lindstrom? Not a knock, just curious because he hasn't seen much of him play. Stats don't indicate he has much offensive upside. Uh, I can take this one. I, I think it's a few different things. Number one, I think the hockey sense is kind of a standout trait for him, and they have been kind of impressed with how he has – uh, adapted to the smaller ice play, how that is translated. I agree though, I don't think he has much offensive upside. So, uh, if he's gonna make it, I think it's as kind of just like an efficient, uh, third pair guy. But I also think that there's guys lower in the system, younger, meaning, uh, who have that kind of, um, similar skill set, but more offensive upside. So, uh, I could see Lindstrom making it. I don't know if I see him as like a five to seven year guy though.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I see him mostly as a, as a third pairing defenseman if he makes it. And honestly, I think there's, uh, when you're evaluating some of these prospects and their timelines and how they grow, I think it's important to acknowledge that some prospects will hit their potential or ceiling, if you will, maybe a little bit earlier, but their ceiling might be substantially lower than another player. So, for me, I don't know that Gustav Lindstrom's ceiling is much more than, or potential is much more than a a good third pairing defenseman and the way it stands right now his his play may be relatively close to that. And if if that's kind of where you're pegging him and how you think his development is, then sure you're going to be a little bit higher on a guy who hit, arguably hit what you consider to be his potential uh, and you may elevate him at that point versus a guy who you think has a lot more capacity to be better or maybe has a higher potential if you think and, and may actually need a little bit more time to round out those pieces of their game before they can really put all the tools together.
0: Can he be Nick Jensen?
1: I don't think so. I think Nick Jensen's offensive upside was uh was better than what you're gonna see from from Gustav Lindstrom. I think what you're gonna see from Lindstrom honestly is what you were hoping for from Jonathan Erickson in his best days. And, and I know that's going to sound bad to a lot of people simply because Erickson's really struggled. But if you look at Erickson back maybe between 2009 and 2013, before he really had a lot of hip and leg issues, Erickson was a serviceable third-pairing defenseman who could play minutes against top guys, but wasn't really going to give you anything offensively. And I, I think that's kind of what you're – maybe hoping for from a guy like Gustav Wincham. I don't think his his offensive potential is what Nick Jensen could bring.
0: I think if he's Erickson, the Red Wings should be over the moon. Erickson had like a 12-year NHL career, so uh I don't think he'll be up to – but I, I get your point. Like That's the mold that you're hoping for with him.
1: Yeah, I, I just think that's the mold he, he fits right now, and I don't necessarily see his potential really moving from that spot. So I think he's most likely to – to be that 3rd pairing guy, and maybe his game's relatively close to being that already.
0: Yep, yep. All right. All right, that's all we got. Everybody enjoy the Super Bowl. Remember who told you the score result and uh, MVP's first, uh, although you'll know him by the time you hear this. But nevertheless, we will talk to you in the middle of this week. Red Wings have a game on Monday against the Philadelphia Flyers, and we will talk a lot about that and Andreas Athanasiou's return and more. See you then.